Facing the end can come in all shapes and sizes, can't it? While it can be regarding health or it can be around employment, it can also be in the final minutes of the clock ticking down on the sports clock. It's been interesting to see the change of attitudes when there is a big gap in the scores of the two opposing teams. And as the clock ticks down, um, so does the drive to finish well. Win or lose, why do anything exceptional when the results are already guaranteed? But what would you want to be known for? Someone who just coasted across the line to the very end? Or someone who looked the opposition in the eye and gave it your all right to the very end? Today, we'll see one such example and be encouraged to do likewise. Let me pray. Jesus, we open your word. We ask that you would help us Holy Spirit, to be open to the things that you want to say to us today. Jesus, we invite you to work amongst us. Holy Spirit, that you would brood over us and work within us. That you would allow your word to wash over us afresh. It's a story that many of us have heard many times before. But may you reveal new truths to our lives as we approach this day as your people. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. For those of you who have tracked with us over a number of weeks um, up to this day, you'll recall that we wrapped up the first part of the Gospel of John last week. Each week it's been as if we've, we've seen this pearl in the oyster with another layer added to it over and over again. Each time Jesus performs a sign and people respond either with belief, believing in Jesus for the first time or adding to and growing their belief in Jesus. But then there are others who begin to grow in their opposition of Jesus. And it reaches a climax in John chapter 12. When the, uh, with the raising of Lazarus from the dead and Mary's anointing of Jesus, the religious establishment decides it is time for Jesus to die. While Jesus made a triumphant entry into Jerusalem riding on the donkey, others are plotting his death. The public ministry of Jesus now comes to a close. For the last three years, Jesus has been in the public eye by and large. But from now on, with only days to go, Jesus focuses his time on those closest to him, his closest followers. John chapter 1 verses 1 to 18 forms the intro to the gospel and then specifically to John chapter 1 to John chapter 12, and it introduces Jesus' public signs and statements that he makes about himself. And then in John chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, it introduces John chapter 13 through to 17, Jesus' private ministry, which is um, an expression of the passion 
behind chapters 18 to 21, which focuses on Jesus' glorification. John 13 finds us only a matter of several hours before Jesus is put on trial, beaten and abused, falsely convicted and sent to his death. This is Jesus' last meal with those closest and dearest to him. For the last three years, he has called them to follow him. They had witnessed the highs and the lows, blind seeing, deaf hearing, mute speaking, and a dead man rising from the dead. Thousands fed from a kid's packed lunch. But rather than sitting back and soaking it up, there is time for more. The aroma of the roast lamb and the freshly baked bread fills the room as the final preparations were completed and the core of Jesus' band of followers assembled. With the last of the arrivals and the greetings, people began to ferry out the various Passover dishes, the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs and the wine. Talk of the day's events dissipated as all were seated. It wasn't the first time Jesus had led the Passover celebrations, but this time there was an intensity to Jesus that had been growing all week. Not a look of distraction, but more of intense focus. At the start of John chapter 13, John teases out what was going on in Jesus' mind. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. Then skipping down, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that everything Uh, And everything that he had had come from God and would return to God. And now, Jesus loved them to the very end. Rather than just running the clock down, soaking things up and enjoying the moment. Rather than just talking with the disciples and taking them on a trip down memory lane, there was time... Pardon me. There was time for one more object lesson. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, and wrapped a towel around his right waist. Have you ever noticed that uniforms make a statement? They do, don't they? You know, a police uniform, you can recognise it and you, you see the authority that is inherent in that uniform. A nurse's uniform a tradie and their high-vis wear that they wear, or a chef and their apron. Wrapping a towel around a waist was instantly recognisable. It made those present immediately stop what they were doing, sit up and take notice. Whispers and fidgets rippled through the room as Jesus moves away from the table and over to the dancing shadows on the wall. 
The Midrash states that when Abraham sent Hagar away, he gave her a notice of divorce, but then also took the shawl off her and girded it around her waist, that people should know that she was a slave. Jesus wrapping a towel around his waist was instantly recognisable as the uniform of a servant or a slave. There, near the door to the upper room, sat a stone jar and a bowl for ceremonial washing. Movement and gentle conversation made the intentions apparent as Jesus started with one disciple and then on to the next. Sandals were slipped off, exposing weathered feet. The sound of trickling water accentuates the soft-lit image of a rabbi doing the unthinkable and washing feet. As many of you would know, out of respect of love and a gesture of deep devotion towards a husband and a father, a wife or a child may wash his feet. But even a Hebrew servant would never be expected to wash his master's feet. That task, that lowly task, was relegated to a foreign slave. I wonder how you'd feel if we stopped right now and I pulled out a basin and water and started washing your feet. What would go through your mind? I wish I had a known. I would have cleaned them up first before I came. Or maybe it's about time because it's been weeks and months since my bunions got buffed. My guess is that your thoughts would probably go to Please no. I have holes in my stocks or my stockings. I haven't trimmed or painted my nails for ages. Or I have smelly feet in these shoes. They're not, they're not the best shoes for this. It's amazing how intensely personal, how intimate it is to wash someone's feet. And while it may be comfortable for some to do this, perhaps a nurse a podiatrist or a dermatologist, but to have a friend or a neighbour just do it. It's, it's all a bit weird, isn't it? I was pastoring a church many years ago and I invited someone up when I spoke on this passage and they, they sat on the stage, on a chair on the stage, and as they sat there, I washed their feet they didn't know I was going to do it. And while they protested a little, but they graciously allowed me to wash their feet, there was a couple in the congregation that day that after the church service protested a lot and accused me of grandstanding. It's interesting, isn't it, how actions can elicit a response from people in contrasting ways. And it's no different in Jesus' day. But it's also very, very interesting, isn't it? On who did and who didn't protest, don't you think? Well, we know who one person was who did protest, Peter. 
In, in John chapter 13, verse 6, it tells us that when Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't understand now what I'm doing, but someday you will. No, 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 Peter protested, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus replied, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. Simon Peter exclaimed, then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet. Peter's immediate reaction is to blurt out to Jesus a protest and differentiate himself from others in the room. While the others might allow Jesus to humiliate himself to do what no Jew should ever be caught doing, let alone a teacher and a master washing the feet of his followers, I will not. I will not let this happen. It won't happen to me. I won't allow him to do it. Remember previously, we have spoken about followers of the rabbi being exhorted with the saying, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi as you would follow behind the rabbi. As you followed behind the rabbi um, along those dusty and dirty roads, may his dust be kicked up and may it cover you as a sign, as a symbol of your faithful following of him. And I can't help but wonder whether for Peter, this dust on him that he carries, he carries with a sense of pride. The dust kicked up by his rabbi was a mark of identification. This is Jesus' dust. But Jesus uses the term belong, a term rich and meaningful. This word would have brought up immediately for those in the room the image of inheritance. The promised land belongs to was an inheritance for the Hebrew people given by God. The future kingdom of God in the age to come belongs to, is an inheritance for the followers of God. Here, Jesus is saying, Peter, unless I wash you, you won't inherit, you won't belong to me, you won't be one with me. You need to allow me to wash off the temporary, to take hold of the eternal inheritance. Well, Peter says, I'm in metaphorically boots and all. Then wash my hands and my head as well. One protest is noted. Another isn't. Did you, have a, did you have a chance to consider who didn't protest despite what was going on internally for him? Who do you think? Judas. Judas was there in the room. And while Jesus was washing Judas's feet, Satan was whispering in Judas's ear. Way back in John chapter 6, verse 70, Jesus brings to light what was lurking in the darkness. Then Jesus said, I chose the 12 of you, but one is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, uh, the son of Simon Iscariot, one of the 12 who would later 
betray him. And then again, in John 13, verse 2, we read of the dark hole that Judas was being sucked into. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Yet there is Judas. And while Jesus humbly washes the feet of the one he knows who will betray him, Jesus does it in such a way that no one else realises what betrayal was festering in Judas's heart. Not an utter of protest from Judas. He takes it all. Perhaps this gesture of Jesus further motivates Judas. But this loving action of Jesus is met with a stony heart. But even at the end of this confronting gesture, Jesus acknowledges that an action such as foot washing is only ever symbolic of what must be experienced in true relationship. While one protested the cleansing gesture, Jesus explained in chapter 13, um, in the, um, verse 10, in the second half of that, and you disciples are clean, but not all of you, for Jesus knew who would betray him. That is why, what he meant when he said, not all of you are clean. But still, no one but Judas and Jesus knew what darkness was brewing inside Judas. Then Jesus uses himself as an object lesson. While the washing of the feet is something significant to do, Jesus is not trying to inaugurate a new practice to echo through time. Instead, what it symbolises is of primary importance. Like much in life, when we focus on the symbol more than the meaning behind it, when we focus on what it, we, we lose our focus on what is more important, and the symbol becomes a legalistic tradition. Jesus' actions were to draw his followers into a realization of love in action. It was a symbol of hospitality, it was a symbol of honor or of service and of humility. If the disciples thought that following Jesus was about getting ahead, about making a name for yourself, and then, like the other rabbis and the students, you know, um, making this big gesture and being a notable person, then Jesus' disciples had missed the point. It doesn't matter what your role is in life or what title you might get at the start or the end of your name or the moments of fame that you might have the opportunity to celebrate. When it comes to showing and sharing God's love to others, no job is too small. And when you think that the clock is ticking down or whatever situation you're, in whatever situation you're faced in, then being a follower of Jesus is a life lived well to the very end. It's not just a case of watching those moments tick by and think, ah, oh, I've lived a good life. 
I've done well. I've ministered in these areas. I've, I've served in this part of life. It's now time for me to put my feet up. It's time for others to love me. Jesus teaches us to love to the very end. And while you may not be able to do much, what you can do should be done with much love. And not just loving those that are in your circle or in your peer group or amongst your friends. Sure, there is no doubt that Jesus expected that there to be this abundance of love shown within and flowing around the body of Christ, his church. It must start with the church, with the body of Christ, within us, but it must not stop there. We are called to show. We are called to speak those words of love of Jesus to others in this community and even to those who may be regarded as enemies of God. As Gary Burge puts it, there are many places you can go to find communities of shared interest. There are many places you can go to to find people just like yourself who live for sport or music or garden or politics. But it is the mandate of the church to become the community of love, a circle of Christ followers who invest in one another because Christ has invested in them, who exhibit love not based on the mutuality and attractiveness of its members, but on the model of Christ who washed the feet of everyone, including Judas. Even as the clock ticked down, Jesus was committed to living a life of love to the very end. How about us? Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for your example of love. It can make us uncomfortable. It can make us squirm and fidget in our seat as we think about what you stooped to do. But Jesus, you showed your love for your followers to the very end. And Lord, help us in the choices that we make where we might find ourselves in situations where the clock is ticking down, where we can think that it's, ah, oh, why bother? Let's just run the clock out. Let's just coast to the end. Lord, may this passage, may your love for us challenge and encourage us to love you, but also to love others to the very end. Amen. So how might we respond today? What's God been saying to you? Well, there's a couple of questions that I wanted to pose to you today. Are there areas in your life where you are allowing the clock to tick down? There might be a part in your life, something happening in life, work situation, health situation, um, family situation, whatever it might be, that you're just thinking, okay, let's just... Let's just get to the end. Let's just get there any way we can. How can you finish this season 
with a commitment to live and love well. Who are those Jesus calls you to love? Pray for opportunity to show and to speak Jesus' love to them. Who do you find hard to love? Pray for Jesus to realise his love through you to them. There's an opportunity now for us to pull out those response cards and to take some time to, to write down a prayer or some prayers of response to one or more of those questions. There's going to be some music played and I encourage you to use those response cards or the chat function now. God bless you.